Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. to season two episode 17 of me and my friend pete another donuts and dimes production the podcast where we explore all things the amazing spider-man comic book series i'm your host peter parker's persnickety pal gerald and before we get into things question have you ever heard the last stanza of rudyard kipling's famous poem if if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. You think Jameson ever gave this advice to his son? Well, we're about to find out, because we've got the great one versus the space one, as the spores Jameson III inhaled way back have finally kicked in and the hate Jameson Jr. has been kicking in his son's ear has finally taken root. The Colonel wants the hands with the Admiral of Arachnids and Spidey's never run from a fight yet. But what about the Sandman? Shut it, you! And if that's not enough, Pete's weaseled out of his meetups with a certain red-haired someone for the last time because Aunt May's not letting it happen again. You ready? Because we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado, we've got THE Amazing Spider-Man number 42, The Birth of a Superhero. Let's swing! Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits. The writer on this one was Smiling Stan Lee with Jazzy John Romito on art and Slammin' Sammy Rosen on letters. This is the November 1966 issue, released August 9th, 1966, because comic books. Let it go. Come on. The cover. This is, put plainly, a gorgeous action-packed cover. We have the title, The Amazing Spider-Man in Goldenrod Yellow with Spidey Costume Red shading his name atop spider's webs as usual. This is on a midnight blue backdrop. In the background of this cover, we see two large cylindrical devices resembling turbines, both dark gray. So we're in a laboratory of some sort. The moonlight is shining through a skylight, casting a hundred squared shadow on the floor. How do I know it's a skylight? There's glass all over the floor beneath the feet of the two superpower combatants getting it shaken. We see John Jameson III, redhead, bushy black eyebrows, heavy brow, Thin slit for eyes, square jaw, top lip, gone. He's a towering six feet, six inches tall. He's a husky, 350 pounds, all muscle. He's wearing a goldenrod yellow space suit with green piping running around his shoulder blades, thin strips running down the arms of the suit, parasuco stripes running down the sides of his thighs. If you were a kid in the early 2000s in New York, you know what I'm talking about. There's thin green seams running the length of his orange boots in the corners of his toes. Around his collar where his helmet would lock in is green as well, connecting to three rods that run down the length of his chest 
to a green rectangular buckle with a yellow diamond at its center attached to an orange belt wrapping his waist. He's wearing silver braces around his wrist and orange gloves, silver-soled orange boots, and silver bracers on his shins. And he's got his right foot lifted, curled behind him, over the broken glass on the floor beneath. His left foot planted squarely on the floor as he throws a wicked right hand. So hard, there's an arc behind the swing like he damn near turned 180 degrees to throw it. And who's he swinging on? The king of swing, of course. The amazing Spider-Man in his classic red and blue outfit who's thrown both arms up to defend himself from the blow. The impacts landed on Spidey's right forearm, forcing our hero back on his heels. Beneath this, in a green banner caption box, we get the birth of a superhero. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the now standard Silver Age splash page at the top in a goldenrod banner. The Amazing Spider-Man. Beneath this, we get a white screen caption box with red lettering inside. The birth of a superhero. And beneath this, we see a scene too bad to be true. Spidey gripping a web line with his left hand that extends to his left feet. His right hand gripping a yellow pouch with brown trim, a large dollar sign on its center in his right hand. And 30 feet off the ground he is, making a break for it towards stage left, looking down over his right shoulder at an angry crowd reaction shot outside of a bank beneath him. There's a raven-haired woman at the corner of the page, her hand to her chin, a man in a green three-piece suit, his left hand raised hopelessly towards Spidey. Another guy in a gray suit and orange pork pie hat in the space between the bank bag and Spidey's leg. Great depth perception art here. And he's staring up at Spidey, wagging an angry fist. A group of people milling about stage left, all staring up, starting to grasp what's happening. And a guy in a tan suit, racing from the entrance of the bank. Above this chaos, we get a caption box. Nope, you're not looking at someone disguised as Spidey, or imitating Spidey, nor are you witnessing an imaginary or a dream sequence. Since this is an authentic honest to Mary Marty Goodman Marvel mag, this scene is really happening. But is our favorite webhead actually committing a crime? Think it over, frantic one, and we'll clue you in later. It's looking like Spidey's gone lawless, but let's think it over. The man in tan screams that Spidey's stealing. The guy in green calls him a thief and a crook. The guy in gray says nobody can get the webhead now. While the raven-haired woman in hot pink shouts that our hero really is the menace, people have said he is. And Spidey, you know he's shouting too. Simmer down, innocent bystanders. There's an anti-noise ordinance in this town. They're filling the air with nonsense. We're turning the page. Page two opens to a caption box. Seconds later. Beneath this, beat cops Bowtie Charlie and Ike to be sure have just pulled up to the bank scene and stepped out of their squad car. Ike asks the man in green, a Mr. Dunlap, what's wrong? Dunlap, fuming, lets the men know that Spidey just made off with a money bag. Charlie, staring up in the direction that Dunlap's pointing and says they're going to put out an APB that's all points bulletin, on the webhead. Ike, having fought side by side with the webhead on the parking docks, asks if Dunlap is sure it was Spidey. Dunlap, looking at the cop like he's crazy, says, Am I sure? I saw him. He takes them into the bank and shows them a vault, a vault that Spidey's bent the bars open using his spider strength on, asking the officers who else could do that. Charlie admits no one he knows can. Ike says he's alerted the precinct that somehow they'll get the webhead. Does Dunlap lose it? When the Queensboro Bridge was opened in 1909, did it have the longest steel cantilever spans in the world? Wait. Of course he loses it! The Daily Bugles run a million editorials warning about that masked menace, 
we should have paid attention to what Jonah Jameson kept writing. He saw through that costume crook's phony facade before any of us. Charlie says they're gonna court on off the whole city, making me think, Put out an APB. Spider-Man's gone too far. Meanwhile, effortlessly scaling the Queensboro Bridge, we find Spidey suited and booted, the bag of money still gripped in his right hand as he climbs the Queensboro Bridge, shouting, so far, so good, and that it's too late for anyone to stop him now. But it's not what we think, because the very next panel, we find our hero perched on the side of the Queensboro Bridge as he screams. All I've got to do is get rid of this bag and my job will be done. But this is the easy part. It's trying to explain that'll be the hang-up. That's that. Now to swing on home and change to Peter Parker while I still can. Before chucking the bag into the East River, because the East River. Later, at the editorial offices of J. Jonah Jameson's Daily Bugle. We're at 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown, Limestone Building. You can't miss it. We're the paper's it couple. That's Betty Brand in a red blouse and matching skirt. Her bob on flawless, as usual. That's Jameson's demon reporter, Ned Leeds, crushing the game in an SJB suit, green striped tie, white kerchief in his breast pocket. And they both are working. Well, Betty's working. She's filing papers away. Ned's leaning against the cabinet next to her with both hands in his pocket. He is doing nothing except ogling his woman. Betty says it's great to be back working at the Bugle, especially since Ned, but before she can finish, Foswell, his fashion daring as usual, is rushing into the bullpen of the Daily Bugle in an olive suit, green fedora, pink bow tie, looking flustered. He asks Betty where Jameson is because Spider-Man has just robbed the bank and the boss will want to know. Betty, no love lost for the webhead, isn't bothered by the info. In the final panel, she says Jameson's at JFK, that's the airport, seeing his son off. But Ned Leeds can't believe what he's hearing. Spider-Man, robbing a bank. That's hard to swallow, Foswell. Foswell apparently changing clothes in the gutter between panels because now he's in a green suit, green bow tie, and green fedora. He says he knows it's hard to believe, but there were a number of eyewitnesses. He says maybe JJ was right about Spider-Man after all. And as far as the eyewitnesses, you know Stan, so I'm going to let you guess how many. A dozen? A dozen! Obsessed with the number 12 is Stan the Man Lee. While at Kennedy Airport. On three, we find JJ in the background of JFK. His Reed Richards working, wearing a green suit, red pinstripe tie, cigar clutched in his left hand, that hand to his mouth as usual, as a plane flies over his head outside of the window behind him. In the foreground, we have John Jameson in his dress blues, a sky blue button up and black tie, his hair reddish brown, chiseled butt chin jaw, heavy black eyebrows. Handsome man, that John Jameson. And JJ may be a lot of things, but I've always gotten the feeling from these early stories that he really loves and is proud of his son, always affirming the guy and talking him up. He's doing more of that here. I enjoyed your visit, son. Now don't worry about those spores you contacted during your spacewalk. They don't mean a thing. We learned about these space spores in ASM number 41. The horns of the rhino. Or run, rhino, run. Here on me and my friend Pete. John, closing his eyes and clutching his forehead with his left hand, is starting to look frazzled. He says JJ's probably right. But he also says, it's getting hot in here. JJ, the cigar falling from his lips as he watches John lean on the counter, asks his son what's wrong. He says John looks flushed all of a sudden. John replies, I don't know. I feel hot. My head's spinning around. Now the fever's leaving me, but I'm groggy. I can hardly keep my balance. JJ shouts, maybe it's the flu, that he'll get a doctor. John, stumbling forward in the next panel, 
tries to grab a nearby pillar to balance himself, but when his hand hits it, he not only bends the metal, but the force tears the pole out of the ground as he shouts. No, it's not the flu. It can't be. I, I can hardly stand, and my clothes are shrinking. I, I'm beginning to pop out of them. Oh. JJ watching his baby boy Hulk out shouts. You, you smashed that metal pillow like a toothpick. And that marble and steel countertop. It snapped the second you touched it. Before John keels over, crashing into the marble counter, destroying it, calling out to his father, asking what's happening to him. JJ, bewildered in the next panel, says John's clothes didn't shrink. He's gotten bigger. And John's become a baby Hulk. His clothes are in tatters. His tie is loose. His muscles are bulging. He's grown a little patch of chest hair between his pecs. And as those imbued with superpowers and a 616 often do when they first get them, he stares down at his hands in wonder and disbelief. He shouts that he's not only bigger, but stronger too, and feels like he can do anything. We're at another superpowered fork in the road. Which path will John Jameson III take? The path of most resistance, apparently, because he tries to take a step forward and his now supercharged leg muscles cause him to go leaping towards a nearby wall. He crashes through it, shot at his newfound abilities all over his face, landing on the ground in the gutter between panels. Still on his knees, surrounded by rubble in the final panel, braced on his left forearm, pushing off the ground with his right hand, John says the spores must be causing his newfound strength. Jameson, from off-panel, shouts for his son to take it easy that two federal agents have arrived. If you recall, because of these space spores, John's been escorted around for the last few months by Alphabet Boys, government agents, who were both protection against John being kidnapped by communist agents of the USSR, and eyes on John to make sure that if something like what's happening right now started happening, they can report it to NASA. So they are never too far away, and Jonah shouts that they've come to help. And they have, because from off-panel, we hear one of the agents scream that they were expecting something like this, and they've got to get the astronaut to their lab on the double. And so... Four opens to a blue town car racing away from Kennedy Airport beneath a bridge towards the aforementioned lab. The agents and Jonah conversing, while I imagine John lays his hulking body in the back seat over Jonah's lap. One of the agents says this is why the rhino was hired, that enemy agents expected something like this, to happen. Jonah agrees, saying if these spores really have made John stronger, the spores would, of course, be a very valuable military secret. Then, exactly 60 momentous minutes later. So an hour later, we have Jonah and company. They've reached the laboratory, and John is rushed to a hospital room on the facility in the gutter between panels. We find Jonah in the background stage right, his back to us, staring through a glass window at his son, who seems to be sleeping peacefully. And in the foreground... Doctors, scientists, agents, oh my! We've got a Carl Winslow bald doctor, the sides of his hair red, and a short sleeve white doctor shirt, stethoscope wrapped around his neck, standing stage right in the foreground. A scientist in a white lab coat, gray hair, black vest, pink tie, he's stage right. And a man with the Reed Richards working, brown on top, white temples, he's wearing pink framed glasses and an SJB suit with goldenrod loafers. This man is style flaring. He's staring through the window at the sleeping John. The doctor, a contemplative hand to his chin, says the spores have to be from a planet like Jupiter or something where the gravitational pull is stronger, so muscle power would have to be as well to overcome said gravitational pull. The scientists agree, saying that John's body is moving the way a human's does on the moon, adding, Under our lesser gravity, he can leap great distances, and his strength far exceeds a normal human's. But this doesn't mean John's out of danger. 
pointing out a picture of Jupiter in the next panel, the scientist continues, saying that this sudden change to John's body will put enormous strain on his heart and nervous system, that they as doctors and scientists have to make sure John doesn't injure himself through carelessness. The doctor, folding his arms and staring at the beautiful gas giant, says they've got to design a suit that can protect John and slow him down. The government agent, quiet this whole time, says he's going to contact the one man who knows a thing or two about building a super suit, namely Tony Stark. And he's going to contact the genius's lab at once. Leader. Stark work that Stark does because in the next panel we find John suited and booted sitting in a chair, his body inside of his makeshift spacesuit from the cover as the scientist, one hand on John's shoulder, uses the other to make some final adjustments. The doctor is here, his hands clasped behind his back. The government agent is here still. He's standing stage right of John. The doctor says Stark and company are the only technicians who could have designed and delivered this suit within hours. The scientists ask if it's heavy enough. John implies that he feels weighted down with lead. So the suit's plenty heavy. If he's 6'6", 350 pounds, and he feels weighted down by that, gotta be heavy. The government agent says this is just what John needed before the scientist tells John to get up slowly. John does in the space between panels and stands with clenched fist in the next. The background splashed with red and white. It's incredible. Even held down by this restraining suit. I feel as though I'm bursting with power. I assume that it's the governmental agent who says from off panel that the suit will allow John to function normally without becoming a victim of his own super strength. In the next panel, the men stand together draped in shadow, and it has to be pointed out that John's grown to that cover height of 6'6". He is towering over them, while the doctor adds that the suit will also regulate John's nervous system and heartbeat to decrease strain on the man's body. John, finally spotting the catch in all this good news, realizes that he won't be able to take the suit off. He asks how long he's going to have to keep it on. With no end date in sight, whenever John takes this suit off, you gotta know he's going to be absolutely ripe, making me wonder for the first time if astronaut suits stink. That's an answer for another time because I couldn't find one, but right now, to answer John's question, the doctor says the colonel will have to be under surveillance now more than ever, that he'll have to be escorted by agents wherever he goes. But I gotta say, at this point, those are just tax dollars wasted. John is a big, big boy now. And if anything can snatch him up and carry him away, I don't think the two normal human agents with him will be any help. Unless they were Joe and Tomas, of course. Oh, of course, that goes without saying. Then, as they leave the building. One of the newly appointed agents flanks the Jamesons closest to stage right in a lavender suit, SJB Fedora with Jonah beside him, while another in a black suit. These are some stylish agents to be sure marches beside John. Lavender Suit asks Jonah what it feels like to be the father of a new superhero. Jonah, shocked, asks what the man means before realizing the implications of the statement in the final panel. The camera pulled in tight on his face, a neon pink background behind him, cigar in mouth, smoke wafting up to the ceiling. Jonah's mind is racing a mile a minute. But, but after me spending months writing editorials against superheroes, trying to ridicule them, to cut them down to size, still, there's a difference. My son isn't a phony superhero, like that fake Spider-Man. And sidebar, nobody said John Jameson had to be a superhero. The man is a decorated astronaut. He could take these newfound abilities and with NASA's help, further the exploration of space in some way, I'm sure. Why does he need to be confined to the planet and forced to be a quotation fingers superhero? This is not a life he said he wants. Either way, on five, we find JJ, John, and the agents tasked with guarding him, still in shadow, now exiting the town car, entering John's hotel. 
The agent's telling the man they're going to stay on call in case John needs them, and they'll allow Jonah to head upstairs if John wants. John wants. He says he needs somebody to talk to. Who better than the man who went one half on a baby to make him? Jonah, massaging out the migraine that's beginning to set in, thinks that these agents need to stop calling his son a superhero, that this could make him a laughing stock after years of lambasting costumed heroes. Then, upon reaching Colonel Jameson's closely guarded room, as the agents exit the room in the next panel, Jameson phones the bugle to find out what's been happening at his company while he's been away, and Foswell's only delivering good news. Say it again! Are you sure? You mean there were witnesses? So there can't be a mistake this time. John, staring over his shoulder at his dad, asks what's happening. Jameson, an almost grimace of a smile on his face, has the phone gripped in his hand above his head with his right hand, his cigar in his left. The camera pulled in tight as he shouts that he's finally got the proof he needs that the whole chicken scratching world is gonna know he was right now. John's like, great, but right about what? Jameson screams about Spidey and JJ the Triumphant's playing trumpets to the news. He finally made his one big mistake. He robbed the bank, right in front of witnesses. John, asking the right question, says how the people can be sure. JJ says the man broke in with his bare hands and scaled a sheer wall on the exit. He goes on to say that this moment is the luckiest break in the world, not just for him, but for John as well. The smile on JJ's face gone, he walks over to his son and holds the man by both elbows, staring up at him with a pained expression on his face. Don't you see? That webhead has fooled everybody. All the time. I was the only one who saw through him. But I was a lone voice, crying in the wilderness. Nobody believed me. They all laughed at me. Now, not only will the world know I was right, but just think of the triumph if my own son is the one to catch that miserable masked madman. John, realizing what JJ's saying, asks if his father wants him to go after the webhead. And I don't know if John's flattered or not, but he shouldn't be. Because this isn't the first time JJ's decided to go after the webhead himself. There was a time JJ convinced the authorities to make Spider-Man a wanted man. That's JJ's beef. There was the whole creating the scorpion incident. That's the man with the vicious right hand. There was a time JJ hired Mysterio to go after Spider-Man. The golden liability, Zingaroo Shuffle. The time he convinced Kraven to go after Spider-Man. The most dangerous, dangerous game. The time he got the help of European psychiatrist Ludwig Reinhardt, who was, of course, Mysterio in disguise. The Twi liability zone. I realize now that J.J. is always calling Spider-Man his arch nemesis, and J.J. may very well be Spidey's greatest enemy. So again, if John's feeling flattered, somebody's gotta let him know that his pop is nothing if not vigilant in ending Spidey's career, whether that be prison or the morgue. J.J. shouts that the bank robbery proves Spidey's a villain, and worse, the man's using his superpowers now to hide, so it could take years to capture him, but not if John goes after him. JJ says John's stronger than Spider-Man. He has no way of knowing that. That John should take this opportunity to show the world what a real hero can do, what his son can do. John says he never looked at it that way. Battery in his back in the final panel, John stomps forward. His father behind him giving said battery one final charge with a smile and shaking raised fist. You've got to prove that no crummy cook can get away with anything, even if he's got superpower. Go get him, Johnny. Squash that wall crawler like a bed bug. You can do it. John says he's on it. JJ? That's my boy. On six, John having stormed out in the space between pages, we see an agent in a maroon suit, Reed Richards working, storm in. Anger in his eyes, he walks straight up to JJ, asking why the colonel left. 
JJ, gripping his suit jacket with both hands and puffing himself up, says there's nothing to be alarmed about, that his son is on a mission, a very important mission, of justice. When the agent reminds JJ that John was ordered not to go anywhere alone because it's too dangerous, Jameson replies, You bet it is. It's a Spider-Man. But what if the rampaging rhino whom Spidey battled just a short time ago? Let's visit a nearby courthouse where we find. They've got the rhino knocked out in the medical wing of a nearby courthouse. Where are the medical wings in courthouses? We have a brown-haired physician, black suit, red tie, a black-haired bowling physician, and a police officer standing guard near the rhino's bed as the brute sleeps soundly with his hands at his sides. The two doctors are confused. They've been trying since the rhino's capture to get the ridiculous gray suit off of the man with no luck. They say they've got to find a way because eventually the rhino's going to wake up and they have no idea how to hold a prisoner who can crash through stone walls with no problems. In the next panel, the brown-haired doctor's got a plan. He says that tranquilizers will be able to keep the rhino sedated and restrained. But the balding doctor, pulling a syringe from who knows where, doesn't think this will work. He says he's broken three needles trying to pierce the rhino's hide already. Brown here says they may have been wrong about their approach. That maybe the rhino's costume isn't a costume, but a part of him. A super powerful hide. Baldy agrees, saying that the outfit can't be was giving the rhino his powers, that it's got to be something else. The two men head towards the door of the room as the camera pulls in tight on the rhino. From off panel, one of the doctors says it's fortunate the rhino didn't wake up yet, that they better get some more specialists in. They exit the room, slamming the door as they do. As soon as that door snaps shut, the rhino's eyes open. And further down the hall, an attorney appears before the bench. We find a silver-haired judge, Carl Winslow Workin, sitting at the bench, old glory stage right of him. So we're in a court of law, and the judge has his hands clasped, leaning forward on his bench, staring down at a sandy-haired lawyer in a green suit whose back is to us pleading his case. But, Gianna, I have such a busy schedule, and there are other attorneys the court might have appointed to defend the rhino. This lawyer does not want to be the rhino's free counsel. The judge replies, I'm aware of that, counselor. But due to the unusual nature of the accused, I feel someone with your experience in bizarre cases was needed. The camera spins and we see it's none other than Franklin Foggy Nelson of Nelson and Murdoch fame. Best friend to a one Matt Murdoch, better known as the man without fear, yeah! Daredevil. However, Mr. Nelson, if you feel you cannot accept the assignment, perhaps your law partner Matthew Murdoch is available. Somebody's going to defend this brute today. But Foggy stammers through an excuse for why Matt can't take the case, saying the man's out of town for the moment, and we get a caption box telling us that this is happening in Daredevil number 21. You know I looked it up. Foggy's right. Matt was kidnapped by Leland Owlsley, a.k.a. the villain known as the Owls, goons, in order to use his prowess as a lawyer in a kangaroo court for the Owl. Either way, Foggy's stuck here. In the final panel, lawyer, <coughs> top flight lawyer that Foggy is, He's had a change of heart. He says that he doesn't mind defending the rhino. The judge tells Foggy that at the moment, the rhino's unconscious in cell block B with a team of police physicians. Foggy says he'd like to consult with his client as soon as possible. Perhaps Franklin Foggy Nelson will get his wish sooner than he expects, for at that moment. Seven opens to the now conscious rhino on his back on a gurney in cell block B, and he is losing it. He's gripping the curtains in front of the window with his hammock of a right hand and his body still on the gurney. That's six feet five inches. That's 750 pounds of burly muscle. And you can't teach that. He's 
kicking an orderly in the back with his left foot and shoving the armed guard in the room away from him with his left hand, shouting that no one can stop the rhino. I am convinced this guy who just got kicked in the back, he just broke his spinal cord. This man is down, legs done off. I would, as soon, as soon as that man's eyes open, I would be gone. I am just an orderly. If you see this panel, this cop has pulled out a baby revolver before he got smacked. What you think you're doing with that? That is the rhino. He is rampaging. Rhino leaps to his feet in the gutter between panels and starts lumbering forward, gaining speed in the next, shouting that he's leaving right now. He takes a step forward, ignoring the bullet that bounces off of his gut, fire from that baby revolver. Someone off panel, stage left, shouts to just let the man through. That help is on the way. As the rhino smashes through a wall of the courthouse shouting, of course, that nothing can stop the rhino's charge. The physicians watch the rhino stomp away in the next panel and not to objectify, but rhino got them yams working. My man got the boy don't hurt hurt nobody. He's worried about the rhino's strength, but brown hair isn't. He says, no matter, they're waiting for him in the corridor with the one thing that may stop him. And before we ask who they is, we see it's a red-haired orderly holding what looks like a helium tank attached to a vacuum hose that he's just turned on. As the rhino stomps forward, Reddy says at this range, he can't miss. And gas begins to fill the corridor, pumped through his vacuum hose. In the final panel, the galumphing rhino slows, surrounded by gas. He hunches over as people scream from off panel. He's slowing down. Look, it's working. The one thing his rhino hide couldn't protect him from. A spray tranquilizer. So I love this because normally we're seeing these great scientists in the 616 universe or superheroes in the 616 universe putting someone down. These doctors, these pharmacists, these orderlies, whatever they are, they found a way to stop a man with incredible strength without hurting him. Gotta love the nonviolent resolution. How they don't pass out from the gas? Beyond me. If it's strong enough to down the rhino, this stuff must be strong enough to kill them. I don't see any gas masks but I'ma let it go. They have drugged the rhino. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, 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 Infinity Page. Page eight. Just in time to witness the rhino face down on the floor, unconscious once more, as the orderly with the vacuum hose stands over him and both physicians keep a healthy distance. Brown hair asks how long they can hold the man. Boldy says they can't keep the rhino indefinitely. And worse, he may develop an immunity to the drug. In the next panel, the two agree that they've got to figure something out quick, lamenting the fact that they don't know the rhino's origin. Despite what you may think, we haven't forgotten about peerless Peter Parker. In fact, here he is now. We're on the scene. The scene? Empire State University's parking lot, where the Goldenrod kid, Pete Parker, is walking from the lot, staring back at his maroon-colored cycle. He's got his SJB suit on, as usual, a book in his hand, as usual, and as what's becoming more usual, a smile on his face as he shouts at his bike. Stay there, Sweeney. Don't get too lonesome while I'm gone. We see three figures cloaked in shadow stays left, one of them waving as another asks who Parker's talking to. The shadow waving replies that the guy's talking to his wheels, of course. In the next panel, we see it's ESU's It Crowd. That's Flash, fashion on Trash Thompson in a green suit, black turtleneck, in a maroon tweed jacket, tan pants, loafers, and vest with an SJB bow tie, his red waves 
spinning on his head. Harry Osborne's in here. And that's the heartthrob, Gwen Stacy. Her platinum blonde hair held back by a black headband wearing a pink chiffon blazer. Matching skirt and pumps. Flash, always ready with some salt and a smile. Bets Pete that he takes the cycle to bed with him every night. Pete asks, doesn't everybody? Gwen, clutching her books close to her chest, her manicure flawless, asks Pete if he'll come to a party at her place on Sunday. Smiling from ear to ear, Pete says he'd love to before smacking himself in the head in the next panel. His thoughts racing. At last, they're really beginning to accept me. It's great to be, ooh, I just remembered. I promised Aunt May I'd meet Mary Jane Watson at dinner Sunday night. I just can't back out again. He looks back at Gwen trying to apologize, saying he can't make it, and Gwen snaps. No need to explain. Attendance isn't compulsory. Turning her back to Pete as she does. ESU's it crowd saunters away in the next panel, Pete following, a scowl on his face, his right hand in his pocket, trying to plead his case. But I don't want you to think I'm just making up an excuse. Gwen's over it. She says whatever she thinks won't bother Peter. She's sure. Flash, always enjoying seeing Pete struggling, is cheesing to the heavens, calling our friend the strikeout king. Harry, genuinely a friend to Pete now, says the kid's probably got his reasons. In the next panel, Flash, his back to us, unloads. If you ask me, he's waiting until there's a party for Wallflowers so he can be a guest of honor. But Gwen tells Flash to shut up, saying no one asked the King of Foolsville. Flash, shocked at her attitude, he says don't tell him that it can't be true, that she, the heartthrob, Gwen Stacy, can't be put on by Peter Parker, not a chick like her. Gwen replies, don't worry my fatuous friend, I won't tell you. So we see Pete and Gwen have more in common than either of them thinks, as Gwen uses an insult Pete's used on more than one occasion. She called this man... Fatuous! The dumbhead still doesn't know more than one-syllable words. And fatuous? Translation? Silly and pointless. The man's a broken pencil, she's saying. In the final panel, Harry hooks Gwen's arm, telling Flash and Pete that the two of them are going to the Silver Spoon. And you know I looked it up. The Silver Spoon is a cafe on Madison Avenue. Pete, watching them leave and the angry look on Flash's face, is loving this. It's like an Aesop's fable, Flash. You needle me about your gal, and Harry Osborne walks away with her. Flash says this is very funny. Pete tells Flash the guy's got a gift for repartee. The remainder of the day drags on for our hero, until at last, a thoughtful Peter Parker leaves his final class. Nine opens to the Goldenrod Kid making his way down a staircase in ESU, other students doing the same around him, completely lost in his thoughts. I'm as anxious to beat Mary Jane Watson on Sunday as I am to meet the Hulk, and she'll probably look like him. Shady! He makes his way out of school, hops onto his baby hog, and gets going. Still lost in thought. Funny how I don't even think about Betty Brennan anymore. She's like the chapter of my life that's closed and done with. But Gwen Stacy looks better to me each time I see her. If only we could get off on the right foot. Just once. Oh well. Pete wants to go one-on-one -on -one with the heartthrob. Cut him a break, universe. Later. As the veil of night begins to shroud the restless city. You know when the Golden Rock kid's got too much on his mind, he's gonna golden liability. And he does. We find him suited and booted, both hands gripping a web line, as he speeds above the city we know and love in the next panel, trying to clear the cobwebs from his mind. In spite, he's got some great eyesight, because he notices... Same. There's someone standing atop that roof. A few blocks away. A few blocks away, costume. he's thinking. And look at the size of him. Wait, wait. I... I know him. He knows the guy he's thinking. This guy must have 20 slash 5 vision. My man Pete, bit by a spider with the eagle eye. Reaching the rooftop with the aforementioned man, 
He spots Jameson in his Stark Enterprises designed power dampening suit and swings towards the man, asking John what changed him. John, raising an enraged fist, shouts for our hero not to worry about him. He says he's just found out his dad was right about Spider-Man, that the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, is nothing but a cheap costume oh, crook. Cheap. Chill. He proves he has no idea how to smack talk, calling Spidey a stumble bum who's finally met his match before cracking Spidey with a surprise right hook that he cocks back from behind his left knee. The blow connects with Spidey's chest. He shouts, Hey, take it easy. I haven't finished paying my last dental bill yet. And we've got action. Spider-Man still reeling from the sucker punch in the final panel. Jameson follows the right with a left that Spidey barely manages to get his hands up to block as Jameson continues. So I'm starting to think Jameson's more pissed about having admired the Spider-Man and finding out he's a crook than he is about Spidey robbing this bank. He says he doesn't like being made a fool of. Spidey asks who does before telling the Colonel to stop swinging and start listening that the man's got it all wrong. Jameson doesn't agree. He says Spider-Man can't deny robbing the bank that too many people were witness to it. He is upset. He has met his hero and found him just a flawed man. On 10, Spidey's feet finally touching the floor from the clobbering. He shoots a web line out at John with his right hand shouting, Oh, it's Daniel that's bothering you. Here, this will hold you still while I tell you my life story. Tangling the astronaut up in his webbing. But John's proving as strong as he looks. He tears through the webbing on the next panel easily, saying Spider-Man can't have believed the webbing would hold him. Spidey replies, Just call me a rash, impetuous optimist. Jameson, calling Spidey a wise guy, says he's going to do a lot more than that. He throws a right haymaker with so much speed it has its own whoosh sound effect behind it. He says he's going to knock Spidey for a loop, turn him over to the police, and end Spidey's habit of making a laughing stock out of the colonel's father. Spidey gets low and gets dodgy, the blow going over his head easily. And our hero stopped talking because now he started thinking. How can I get mad at a fellow who thinks he's fighting for truth, justice, and mom's apple pie? But how do you get so blame powerful? I don't want to be pulverized by a good guy any more than by a bad guy. Spidey must have forgotten the business he's in. You're going to fight villains for breaking the law. You're going to fight heroes, too, for misunderstandings. And John's neither officially yet, so you're going to fight him because it moves units. Either way, as John Punch goes flying over Spidey, our hero pushes up from the floor, slamming his lower back into the astronaut's stomach, shouting, Now look, fun's fun, but you're overdoing it. Translation, you old it, little John. John's body curls around Spidey's, visibly shook up from the unorthodox attack, the air leaving his lungs in a loud, but he's back in business in no time in the next panel, swinging his massive fist in a downward strike, cracking the rooftop as Spidey shouts for him to cool off. John shouts that Spidey will be able to explain anything he wants after he's behind bars where he belongs. In the final panel, Spidey's done being nice. Can't afford to pull my punches any longer. He's too strong, too dangerous. Sorry about this, fella, but it only hurt for a second. And maybe it'll knock some sense into you. Spidey cracks the astronaut across the jaw with a right hand of his own, backing the man down, despite Jameson's jaw feeling like iron. On 11, his hand ringing, Spidey stares at the astronaut amazed, wondering how Jameson turned into a powerhouse. Jameson, flexing like, yeah, eat those, give me another one. Says now that Spidey realizes he can't hurt him, they should finish where they left off. Before opening his arms wide and walking towards Spider-Man like a creepy uncle who wants a hug. Backing our hero into a brick chimney stack, shouting that Spidey's bank robbing days 
are over. But what's the fourth rule of the Golden Liability playbook? Back against the wall, Spidey's gonna leap. And he does! Ha! Up and over Jameson who smashes into the brick with both hands. Spidey shouting again that he didn't rob that bank. If only Jameson would listen to him. The chimney collapsing on impact. John screams, forget it. You're not battling some brainless so-called supervillain now. Spidey landing behind him replies that he wishes he was. Before going web neck crazy, catching the falling debris in a net of webbing with his left hand. In the final panel, Jameson shouts that Spidey's just delaying the inevitable. Spidey says that's fine, that he can use the exercise before swinging the bricks at Jameson in a stunning panel. The astronaut throws his hands up to guard as Spidey shouts, Now this will keep you busy while I explain how wrong you are about me. And pay close attention. I hate having to repeat. On 12, we see John is really a bruiser. He smacks the web bag of bricks that have just connected with him away from his face easily, repeating that he doesn't like to be made a fool of as Spidey thinks that this whole bit is getting ridiculous. Jameson advances again, shouting that their beef is done. He's wrapping it up for good now to Spidey's response. I was hoping you wouldn't say that. Here's web in your eye. The King of Swing lets the astronaut have a face full from his right web shooter before pressing the advantage by racing forward and lifting the man off of his feet and above his head easily. Huh. Stop squirming. It'll dissolve in a few minutes and you'll be good as new again. But in the meantime, I have a vested self-interest to take care of. Namely, I want to get out of here in one piece. He slams Jameson onto the back of his head and shoulders in the next panel. So you just lie down and contemplate the folly of fighting your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Alliteration going crazy, Spidey, we see you, we hear you. Before leaping off the side of the oh. building and web swinging away, leaving John on one knee, fighting to pull the most amazing invention in the whole world from his face. Spidey, looking back as he web swings forward, thinks, Phew, he's getting right back up again. Lucky for me that he's not a web slinger also, or I might never get away. Sure wish I knew what vitamin pills he's been taking. Too bad he wouldn't let me explain about the bank, though. I'm dying to tell someone. Of course, the one thing I can't tell anyone is that it all started when Peter Parker's spider sense warned him of danger. And the final panel opens to a flashback of a one Peter Parker in a brown suit, red tie, inside of a bank standing in line as a woman speaks to the bank teller in front of him. As he stands on said line, a couple of guards pass him holding yellow money bags exactly like the one from the story earlier, and Pete's spider sense begins tingling. That payroll bag. Something's wrong with it. 13 opens to Pete cloaked in darkness, removing his snazzy suit to reveal his spidey costume beneath as he stares at a door he's webbed shut. Good thing I leaned close to it. I couldn't mistake that faint ticking sound. Payroll bags don't usually contain bombs. As far as I know, I've got to get back there again. Fast. Spidey's on the scene in the next panel, racing from the room, staring over his shoulder at the imposter guard who's climbing into the back of an armored car. Our hero thinking he can't focus on this guy now, that the phony money bag's already been planted and he's got to get it. I can guess what his game is. After the bomb goes off inside the phone, he can return for easy pickings. A guard notices the red and blue clad Spidey and shouts for our hero to hold it. But Spidey's not taking orders right now. He drops the guy in the gutter between panels with some webbing before doing the same to the guard racing out of the vault in the next, shouting that he doesn't have time to explain. The first guard, caterpillared on the floor, shouts there's nothing to explain. Anyone can spot a bank robber. In the next panel, Spidey's facing us, gripping the bars to the vault and bending them apart easily as a webbed up guard shouts about it incredulous. Spidey replies, Oh, it's nothing. 
All Stella needs is a proportionate strength of a spider. Spotting the yellow bag that's making his spider sense go crazy. Our hero's hoping he has enough time. And we're back on that page one image from the perspective of the people on the ground. Romito working with the perspective shift as Spider-Man stares down at us, thinking, Can't stop now. It may blow it any second. Spidey's not robbing the bank. There's a literal bomb in the bag. We're back with Spidey on the Queensboro Bridge now as he tosses the bag into the East River, shouting that it can't do any damage now. In the next panel, we find Spidey back in the present, web swinging above the city as he finishes his story. It exploded just after it hit the water. Another few seconds would have been too late. And they'll all know I'm innocent as soon as they realize no money's missing. Boy, won't Jonah be surprised? Who is he talking to? And, speaking of that peerless paragon of publishing parsimony. Translation? Parsimony. Extreme unwillingness to spend money or use resources. Translation? Miserable magnates money machine. That's 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown, Limestone Building. You can't miss it. Where Foswell is putting his green fedora on his head in the foreground, staring back at JJ who's puffing a cigar. And we learn JJ's given Foswell a new assignment. Forget about covering John Jameson capturing Spidey, he tells Foswell. He wants the man on the rhino. His personal feelings aside, the rhino is the new villain on the block. And if there's one thing JJ knows, new villains move units. When Foswell asks who's going to cover his son's capture of Spidey, JJ replies with the only answer that could ever come from his lips. J. Jonah Jameson himself, Foswell. That'll be the greatest triumph of my illustrious career. Foswell, probably rolling his eyes, replies, Sure, boss, if you say so. He gets ghost a moment before Spidey hops through JJ's office window to open page 14, just as JJ is about to take a seat behind his desk, shouting that he can't be wrong this time, that Spidey was seen robbing the bank, and that John's going to capture the webhead before he notices the flutter of his orange curtains behind him. Hey! What are you doing here? Spidey tells JJ not to lose his cool, that he's got to tell the man something. As JJ rises to face him with clenched fists, Spidey gets right to it. I did rob that bank. I saved it from a robbery. JJ says if Spidey's innocent, he's Huckleberry Finn. Spidey, always equipping the chamber, replies, Not a chance. Mark Twain would have busted his quill pen before he inflicted you on the reading public. Stan Lee wouldn't know he gave us JJ. And paraphrase from Wikipedia. Samuel Langhorne Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, nicknamed the father of American literature, was an American writer, humorist, entrepreneur, publisher, and lecturer, most famous for The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, released in 1876, and its sequel, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, known widely as the great American novel. Born and raised in Missouri shortly after the appearance of Halley's Comet, Twain dropped out of school at 11 to become a princess of princess. Worked See, as a typesetter and began writing almost immediately for his hometown of Hannibal, Missouri's journal, owned by his brother Orion, before heading out into the world to seek his fortune as a printer, before landing his dream job, Steamboat Pilot, the job that would lead to his pen name. Side quote. Traditional terms for soundings are a source for common expressions in the English language, notably Deep Six, a sounding of six fathoms. On the Mississippi River in the 1850s, the leadsmen also used old-fashioned words for some of the numbers. For example, instead of two, they would say twain. Thus, when the depth was two fathoms, they would call... By the Mark Twain! Thanks, Wikipedia! Clemens used his newfound pole in the steamboat business to get his younger brother Henry a job on a steamboat. A steamboat whose boiler exploded, seriously injuring Henry, who died of his wounds a week later. Clemens would blame himself for his brother's death for the rest of his life. Moving west with his older brother, who became the secretary for the Nevada Territory's governor, Clemens became a miner, then went to work for a newspaper company where he began using the pen name Mark Twain for the first time. Twain gained his first success as a writer with the tale, 
The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, published in November of 1865, gaining national attention from it. Twain married in 1870, lived in Buffalo, New York briefly, then moved to Hartford, Connecticut, where he wrote most of his classic novels, including The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Prince and the Pauper, and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, amongst others. And Huckleberry Finn? It's considered the first great American novel, and if you were educated in the United States school system, chances are it was required reading for you somewhere between 5th and 12th grade. But the success Twain gained from writing was lost in his side hustles, namely a typesetting machine he spent $300,000 on. What does that equal today? You know I looked it up. That's $9 million. But Twain ain't had problems. He had friends. And thanks to his friendship with a wealthy oil magnate, Henry Huddleston Rogers, Twain was able to bounce back and escape his money woes. Despite filing for bankruptcy, Twain paid off all his creditors in full. I'm assuming for the principle of the thing. Signed, got it. More than a writer, Twain traveled extensively on lecture tours in America and Europe, increasing his fame until his death, which was coincidentally around the very next appearance of Halley's Comet. Some things really are written in the stars. From rags to riches, stories don't get much better than Twain's. Talk about writing your way out. Thanks, Wikipedia. Back to. So Spidey's saying Twain would rather destroy his quills than create someone like J. Jonah Jameson. J.J.'s like, I honestly don't care what you say. Where's my son? How did you escape him? Spidey gives the answer only a daring young man on the flying trapeze could. Want the greatest of these, chunkles? Before leaping out of the window from whence he came huh. and spraying a web line while staring at an irate JJ over his right shoulder. Thinking JJ's too mad to tell him how the colonel became a powerhouse, he shouts at the master of miserly, telling the man to call the bank and ask about the missing money. Spidey says if JJ does, he'll know the truth. Jonah's like, sure, whatever, fella. He leans out the window, waving an angry fist, filling the air around him with smoke, shouting that John's going to bring Spidey to justice. But something about what Spidey said is sticking in his crawl. Call the bank. What did he take me for? I know he's guilty. But why would he tell me? What's he up to? That's no. what he said. I will give that fake the satisfaction. Nuts. 60 seconds later. Jameson's made that phone call. He's standing at his desk, the receiver pressed against his ear, slamming a fist on said desk, and he's not happy at all. Never mind who this is. I'm just an unselfish crusader for justice. Unselfish? Crusader? Justice? Lion! John, seething, slams open the door to JJ's office in the next panel, shouting one thing. Where is the Spider-Man? JJ, admitting he could be wrong about the webhead, tells John there's a chance the bank wasn't robbed, that Spidey could be innocent. But John could give a damn at this point if Spidey's guilty or not. He shouts that he doesn't care if Spidey's innocent, that he owes Spidey something, and he's going to deliver it. Translation? The man hit me with a web sack of bricks, and I need my hit back. Now. Jameson the Elder says the two should wait, that if Spidey didn't rob the bank, but John's not having it, he's not trying to hear it. He's going to polish the web head off, and he's not waiting. JJ shows some class and concern about his kid. He replies, No! You can't use your power just to satisfy a grudge. You've got to forget about him. Do you hear? But didn't you put the battery in his back, JJ? Didn't you tell him to embrace his cruelness, his deadliness, and your hopes he crushed Spider-Man? My sources say yes. And then... 15 opens with JJ, a hand on the small of his massive son's back, leading his son towards the entrance to his office and back into the custody of the G-Men. One of the G-Men, cloaked in shadow, says he has orders to escort John Jameson back to his five-star hotel. JJ tells John that he needs some rest. John says he knows what he needs. I need to find Spider-Man again and prove that I can whale the tar out of that crooked creep. 
I'm a superhero now. And I'm the best there is. I'm stronger than anyone. Nobody's gonna push me around. Nobody. JJ, running a hand through his hair, realizes he may have talked another man into a monstrous attitude, thinking John doesn't sound heroic anymore, that the man sounds bitter, arrogant, and completely merciless. He shouts at John not to do anything rash, but his kids already turned and walked off, ignoring his father's words, making Jonah think John's like a stranger to him now. While in a typical bedroom, in a typical room, in a typical neighborhood, a not-so-typical spider-powered youth makes a sudden decision. Cloaked in shadow, Pete sits bolt upright in his bed shouting, probably waking May and the neighbors. It's no use. I can't sleep. No sense even trying. It's as though something's calling me, making me get up. I left things too undecided with Jonah's son. I've got to find him again. And in no time, he's suited and booted in the next panel, his foot on his desk chair as he slides his Spidey boot onto it. Spidey's got one goal. Find John Jameson and put him down because the man isn't the same John Jameson that Spidey first met and liked. So, Spidey's on the prowl. And at that moment, in another part of the city, as if to lend emphasis to Spidey's words. John, still in his astronaut costume because why chain clothes, has just sat up from his starchy mattress and obliterated the nightstand near his bed with a closed fist, shouting that nobody's going to keep him cooped up in here. And he's going to find the gloating Spider-Man. And this it. time, Spider-Man is not already. going to get away. And he does. Steamrolling both of his handlers on the way out of his hotel room, shouting that it'd take 100 of them to stop him. Not a dozen. We find him in the final panel, stomping down no a dark main, main street, hunched over, screaming. I don't care what anyone says. I don't even care if Spider-Man didn't rob that bank. I've got to prove I can beat him. I've got to prove I'm the greatest superhero of all. I don't have to answer to anyone. I've got the power, the strength, to make my own rules, to write my own ticket, anywhere. Man is talking that might makes right, and this is the moment I need him to get punched in the face. Because if it does, I'm going to assume Spidey's stronger than you. So then he's probably right. Bad philosophy on life. Like some mystic metaphysical magnet, fate seems to draw both men to the same place at the same time. And then... Voila. So, you know, they're calling this mystical or whatever the case is, but I've read this great fan theory that because of Spidey's spider sense, it warns him and protects him from danger, but it also leads him to danger. It also leads him to people that he can help. That's why whenever he's web swinging around, these crazy things are happening. Something in his brain, something in his spider sensory is saying, you need to be here to help. I love that fan theory. And it, yes, it may be a little bit mystical. It may be a little bit funky, but I love it because Spidey is always in the right place at what appears to be the wrong time for him. But how many people has he already saved? Back to 16 opens to Spidey standing horizontally on a sheer wall of a building above a danger high voltage sign. Staring down at John Jameson, shouting out insults. What's the matter, fella? Someone taking away your spaceship? It's me, Colonel. How about us having a peaceful little talk? John shouts that talking is done. He wants to finish Spidey off. Spidey tells the man to get in line and reminds him that they have no reason to fight. But John's thinking different. He's clicking a button on his boot near his calf muscle and the lead weights fall from his boots. He had lead weights lining the bottom of his boots. Not held down anymore by gravity, he leaps 15 feet in the air towards Spidey in a Superman pose, shouting he can go anywhere Spider-Man can go and our hero won't escape him again. Spidey, watching the man pouncing towards him, thinks, 
I can see that he doesn't really care if I'm innocent or not. He isn't out for justice. He just wants to fight. In short, whatever gave him his power also knocked him off his rocker. Before dodging sideways and giving the man an A for effort. And we got action. Again! As Jameson's fists slam into the wall beneath Spidey's ribs, Jameson shouts one miss does not a fight make, and he's got plenty more blows to throw. He reminds me of the Green Goblin. He doesn't really know what he's doing. I don't want to hurt him. But do I have any choice? You know, Spidey, you don't. Throw them bows. In the final panel, Spider-Man leaps from the wall huh. upside down, spraying web lines from both hands towards the roof, shouting that Jameson will never bring him back down to Earth with a few punches. That swinging upside down like this is great for insomnia. And his shtick gets stickier. In a captioned balloon, the font upside down with musical clefts surrounding it, Spidey goes to a tried and true classic. He floats through the air with the greatest of these, the daring young man on the wine trapeze. I imagine that's how he sounded. 17 opens to John staring at Spidey who's retreating up the sheer wall as only a spider can. John shouts that he's gonna wait for Spider-Man to come down to where he is to fight him, and he can afford to wait. But Spidey doesn't punch down. This building's a power station. That gives me an idea. He shouts that if Jameson wants him, he's gonna have to come up to the roof. But Jameson's an astronaut. The man doesn't know fear. He leaps the tall building in a single bound, landing in the next panel with a loud thump, hot on Spidey's heels. Literally! Our hero's feet are all we see of him in the panel, as he thinks his plan is a long shot, but he's gotta try it. Jameson shouts, now I've got you! Cornering our hero between a rectangular skylight and a water tower. But Spidey's not worried a bit. Now I've got you? Say, you wanna copyright that phrase? It's a real swinger. Did you think it up all by yourself? Jameson, incensed, rushes the webhead screaming for him to tell his jokes now because he won't get another chance. But back against the wall, Spidey's gonna leap. And he does, sideways, going full calisthenics, grabbing the legs of the water tower, he shouts, Oh, you're a prophet also, eh? Gus, there's just no limit to on your talents. Cracking Jameson across the jaw with his left foot. Jameson, reeling, eats the blow, and tries to counter with a double-handed hammer fist in the next panel. But our hero is ready for it. He grabs the astronaut by both wrists, thinking he's got Jameson in the spot he wants him in at last the spot right in front of that skylight. And with the age-old shout of, Geronimo! He hip-tosses Jameson like Kurt Angle in the gutter between panels, and the two men go crashing through the skylight in the next panel. Spidey putting his body on the line for that big W. To no avail! Even falling, Jameson's ego is still sky high. He shouts that this won't do Spidey any good. The two crash to the floor in the gutter between panels and are back on their feet in the next. Jameson advancing, both fists clenched once more towards Spidey, who watches the man, his fingers wide. It may not do me any good, but if I'm lucky, it may help to bring you back to your senses. If you still got any, Jameson's up for the challenge. I'll show you what I've got, especially since you've no place left to run. This'll finish you off. Now the world will know I'm the strongest. On 18, surrounded by generators, he puts his full weight behind a right hand in a beautiful panel, connecting with the side of Spider-Man's head, sending the hero reeling towards a generator. 
When Spidey eats the blow he took, he asks what exactly John is the strongest in. He follows up the right overhand with a right straight that Spidey has to fall backwards to dodge, bending the iron of the generator behind our hero's head. Spidey, clasping his hands together and crouching low in the next panel, shouting that what he's about to do is for the Colonel's own good. Jameson, talking instead of fighting, says Spidey won't do anything except get flattened. A moment before Spidey clubs the man with both fists, a loud wham! Racked across the astronaut's chest, and Spidey is shouting, Colonel, what I'm gonna do now is for your own good. Let's both hope this works. Dealt a shattering blow by two arms possessing the almost indescribable proportionate strength of a spider, Jonah Jameson's maddened son staggers back, exactly as Spidey planned it. Backwards right into the electromagnetic field of the two generators. Jameson, now trapped in the current, is surrounded by a goldenrod yellow light as electricity floods his body, coursing through him. Spidey, looking on in profile, stayed left, his left fist clenched, screaming, Sciency! Now the electromagnetic field builds into your suit to cause a feedback from that generator, which, ah, it worked! There it is! Spidey 1, Iron Man suit, Big Donut. Jameson collapses in the space between pages, shrinking as he does, and opens 19, unconscious, flat on his chest. And of course, Spidey standing over him, staring down, monologuing something fierce. He's normal-sized again. I knew it. Whatever changed him just had to be a result of something contacted during his spacewalk. So I chose the one way to shock it out of his system before it became so firmly entrenched that nothing could help. He'll be coming too after a while. Boy. My spidey powers are great, but it was my science savvy that licked this one. As it often is, Spidey, this fight is over. Ten minutes and 26 seconds later, because we know you're a stickler for accuracy. Spidey's left John on the scene, and the scene is now filled with people. One cop, probably Bowtie Charlie. Three G-men, a suited doctor, and one J. Jonah Jameson. One G-man in a maroon blazer, olive slacks, black fedora, hand in pocket, says he never thought he'd get a call from the webhead himself. The doctor, SJB suit, sandy brown hair, bends down to check Jameson's pulse, announcing that John seems to be back to normal. The second G-man, cloaked in a shadow, says the lab boys will be glad that they believed the whole earth was in danger while the spores coursing through John lived. Jameson, refusing to give credit where it's due, asks how John was returned to normal. Who knocked him out? But we know and see the answer to that in the next panel as Spidey stares down through the skylight, staring at the scene. A G-Man says it doesn't matter, but you know Jameson doesn't believe that for a second. Wagging a finger in the G-Man's direction, he shouts, No! Don't you see? It's Spider-Man's fault! He tormented my son! Made him fight! Tried to turn him into a killer! Like he himself is! But he couldn't do it! John was too brave! Too strong! Too smart! He's a chip off the old block! does JJ think Spidey's killed besides his ego on a regular basis? What is going on? Seeing the man paddling down the Nile, Spidey decides it's his time to make tracks and gets out of there. Web swinging away in the next panel, thinking if John really is stunting like his daddy, the man's got enough problems without Spidey hanging around. And a few hours later, we find the Prince of Forest Hills living the high life. He's in his silk lavender pajamas, a maroon blanket wrapped over his kicked up feet, his hands behind his head, in bed, all smiles, shouting, Ah, my favorite time of the week. Good old Sunday. Nothing to do but take it easy. Tune up my cycle and soak up some sun. If there's any sun left, 
I spent most of the day away. Wonder what Gwen's doing. Maybe I'll give her a call. But did you forget? Because May didn't. She opens Pete's door asking the kid if he's ready because they have dinner with Mary Jane in a few hours. Pete smacks his hand to his forehead, stressed out, asking, Forget? Gosh, Aunt May, who could forget? Don't be mean. That's who. But in the final panel, Pete shows he's game for more than just swinging and zinging. We find him white shirt on, collar up, tying a red tie around his neck, smiling in his bedroom, his thoughts running a mile a minute. I spent months trying to avoid meeting Mrs. Watson's niece, but it looks as if this is one contest Spidey's gonna lose. Aunt May managed to outmaneuver me at last. Oh well, I guess I might as well meet her and get it over with. She may not be as bad as I expect. She'll probably be worse. The jerk! Thus, like a condemned man walking the last mile, we find our hapless hero. Walking down the street of Forest Hills, SJB suit on, hands in pocket, as usual. Aunt May beside him in an olive dress and jacket, matching hat, debutante gloves, and a tan purse. They are style flaring. May says she's always thought Mary Jane was the sweetest thing. All smiles, thinking her nephew is so shy. Pete Smirking says that's just swell. But we know he isn't convinced. In the next panel, the two reach the Watson home and are greeted at the door by Anna Watson, who's wearing a full-length green dress. So this is a full-on dinner party. Everybody actually got dressed up for this. It's a big deal. Anna hugs May, telling her she's so glad the woman could make it. May says they wouldn't miss it for anything. Pete, his hands behind his back, seconds that emotion. And I always love that despite how Pete's feeling, when he's out with Aunt May, he always tries to make her look good. He's never like one of those kids who goes out with his parents and is like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. Why am I going to stand in line? Come on, it's boring. And before anybody feels insulted, I was that kid. So I'm just saying he was a better guy than me. I learned a lot from this guy. Anna invites the men in the gutter between panels and the three talk in the vestibule of the next. Anna says Mary Jane will be here in a moment as she's just leaving her apartment. Pete takes this as good news. That's one good thing. She doesn't live here. She'll probably have to go back home early. May, ignoring the sly smirk on her nephew's face, tells Pete not to be impatient. Our friend says he'll try. In the next panel, a long horizontal, May and Anna are sitting at the dining room table stage left while Pete sits in the den, literally staring at a desk lamp with a hand on his chin, lost in thought. This kid is so bored, he's staring at light. Funny how I can't get Gwen out of my mind lately. Something tells me she kind of likes me. I never really did ever get to know her. But once I get this Mary Jane ordeal over with. So Pete's here thinking about the heartthrob Gwen Stacy, and of course, May confuses this with Pete being eager to meet Mary Jane. A moment before, the doorbell rings. Pete and Anna rise to meet Mary Jane at the door, and Pete opens it. Why does he open it? It's not even his house. Either way, all his jerk thoughts and snide remarks are gone now, as he stares dumbfounded at the red-haired woman whose back is to us. Anna, all smiles like, I told you so, says, Peter Parker, I'd like you to meet my niece. Pete, completely thunderstruck, replies, You mean, that's Mary Jane? In the final panel, this hour. Panel of the week. Pete staring, his face in profile, taking upstage right completely, his mouth agape at Mary Jane Watson, standing with a white leather jacket draped over her right forearm. She's got on a tight black sleeveless shirt, lavender pants, a smile on her face that's accentuating her high cheekbones. Her red hair is flowing down just past her shoulders, her bangs just past her perfectly penciled eyebrows. She's slightly contraposto, her left hand raised just above her waist. 
And in her first ever appearance in Amazing Spider-Man, she says the only thing she can. Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Damn straight. And we're out. Things will never be the same again. But to be fair, Spidey's comics are nothing if not status quo shaker-uppers. This was a fantastic story. For a while, we were removed from Spidey kind of falling into action as Peter Parker. I was beginning to miss his trips to museums that turned into an adventure for Spider-Man, but the bank heist foiled before it began, leading to the one-on-one -on -one with the Space One was a great callback to the idea that things are constantly happening in New York and Spidey's got the great cosmic and comic timing to be in right place, right time. Big Johnny Senior was working in this one in the art, and if not for the appearance of Mary Jane, of course, being the panel of the week, there were so many that could have easily grabbed the prize. The first panel on page 18 especially is a masterclass in how to draw a punch being thrown with force. Next main episode, we've got a return of the rampaging rhino, and dare I say it, Petey Parker's become a scene kid in Amazing Spider-Man number 43, Rhino on the Rampage. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you sign up to patreon.com slash HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers, patrons have a vault filled with bonus episodes covering comic book stories from all over the multiverse of comic book universes. Next bonus episode, we're back in the home of the godlike heroes and focused on the rebirth of one of the greats, my favorite hero from DC, The Flash. Join us as we cover The Flash Rebirth number six. Barry Allen was gone a long time. Does the fastest there was still have what it takes to be the fastest there is? Does a bear hot rod? Fine, join us to find out. And if you become a patron before ASM number 50, you receive a thank you gift from me and my friend Pete for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in myfriendpete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. Thank you so much to all our patrons, new and seasoned. We couldn't do it without you, and we wouldn't want to if we could. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please be share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. That dusty trails are calling, so there's no use stalling, and you know the tagline for the people. With great power, baby, you gotta make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.